This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. The mid-20th century was a time of intense upheaval. World War II saw humanity debase itself with systematic, sadistic evil, permeated and perpetuated by the most sophisticated, intellectually advanced country in Europe. In the aftermath of that worldwide trauma, the struggle to rebuild life included a search for new ideas, new ways of thinking to replace the failed pre-war philosophies, theologies, and politics. Intellectuals who survived this dark period struggled to create a world of ideas they could believe in, ideas that were coherent and relevant to their experience, ideas that might help replace despair with hope. One of those struggling intellectuals was Jacob Taubus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Jerry Mueller to the show today to talk with us about his brand new book, Professor of Apocalypse, The Many Lies of Jacob Taubus. Jerry's earlier books include The Mind and the Market, Capitalism and Western Thought, and Conservatism, an anthology of social and political thought from David Hume to the present. Jerry Mueller, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Renee. Congratulations on the book, Jerry. But before we begin to talk about this fascinating intellectual, tell us a little about your own intellectual development. Who would you say were the most important influences on your own intellectual life? I came of age, I suppose, in the 1970s and uh, early on in my undergraduate life, I came into contact with Gerald Eisenberg, who was a professor of intellectual history at Brandeis University, where I was then studying, and he got me hooked on this subject of Uh, the history of ideas and the history of intellectuals. Uh, And there were a number of issues that interested me from early on, having to do in the first instance with intellectuals and politics. This was still uh, very much the era of the Cold War. And I was interested in the attraction of intellectuals to radical totalitarian solutions to the purported problems of liberal capitalist modernity. And I was interested in that on the left and on the right 
And I was even more interested in the question of how such how, how intellectuals who had been attracted either to communism or uh, national socialism became disillusioned with those solutions and how they became more open to uh, accepting the relative advantages of liberal capitalist welfare state democracy. Uh, early on, before I went to college, <laughs> I read a book by Isaiah Berlin called Three Essays on Liberty, which had a tremendous influence on me in thinking about the uh, relative advantages of liberal societies broadly construed uh, and some of the snares of trying to come up with sort of wholesale alternatives to them. Uh, so on the one hand, the field of intellectual history interested me. Um, intellectuals and politics interested me. Uh, I came from a Zionist background, uh, which I continue to maintain, and the questions of uh, nationalism and national identity interested me from early on and have continued to. And as time went on, questions of uh, religion and scholarship uh, or the, the tensions between uh, religious belief and scholarly approaches to religion came to interest me more and more. Uh, that will tell you a little bit about my background. Well, that does tell us where, what lens you look at, at the world through. Uh, before publication of this book, Taubes was not among the most well-known thinkers of his time. In fact, you write that Taubes was less a scholar than a seer. Explain what you mean by that and why it captured your interest. Well, he aspired to be a seer, um, as opposed to, uh, that is to someone who uh, inspired others and made broad pronouncements about the present and the possible future, uh, as opposed to someone who did the more routine work of scholarship in the, in the various fields that he was in, philosophy, religion, uh, sociology, and so on. Uh, and uh, I, I first, uh, he, he, as you say, he, he wasn't very, he was pretty well known in German intellectual circles in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. And he was known in some uh, American intellectual circles because he had spent time in the United States uh, in the 40s and 50s and early 60s and was well known to what were sometimes called the New York intellectuals. Uh, and he had, well, I guess we'll come to this, he had connections in Israel as well and was known to circles of people there. But because he wasn't somebody who published uh, very much. He only published one book in his lifetime, which was his doctoral dissertation, which he published at the age of uh, 24 in 1947. Uh, because he wasn't someone who published very much, um, he wasn't as broadly known as he might otherwise have been, or as broadly known as he subsequently became in certain intellectual circles in Europe and the United States, and even in various Asian countries uh, as a result of his posthumous reputation. Well, while I, I was I, reading... I, oh, yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I first became 
interested in him, I mean, interested enough to think about doing a biography of him in a rather curious way. Uh, I only met him once, and that was for about an hour in 1980, when I was uh, visiting with my brother-in-law in Jerusalem. And my brother-in-law had studied with him briefly in Berlin, and it was one of the major Jewish holidays, and my brother-in-law went to the Western Wall, and there he ran into his old teacher, Jacob Taubus, and he brought Taubus back to his house, uh, and I was assigned to talk to him. At the time, I was planning on writing a doctoral dissertation having to do with intellectuals who had been uh, attracted to communism and then had become anti-communist liberal intellectuals connected with an organization called the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And in the United States, that included some people like Irving Kristol and Gertrude Himmelfarb and Daniel Bell and a number of others. And, and I had read somewhere that sometime shortly after the Second World War, these people had had a seminar on Maimonides with Jacob Taubus. So when I met Jacob Taubus in Jerusalem in 1980, I asked him about this seminar and he remembered it and he uh, had some vivid descriptions of some of the people in it and so on. And then I didn't think about him for a number of years uh, and I ended up writing my doctoral dissertation on a different topic having to do with German intellectuals who were attracted uh, by their critique of liberal democracy to national socialism and why they became disillusioned with it. That was a book called The Other God That Failed. And while I was putting the finishing touches on that book, a little booklet came out by Jacob Taubus about Carl Schmitt, uh, who was a leading uh, German constitutional and political thinker who had been uh, a critic of the plausibility of liberal democracy in the 1920s and then in 1933 uh, became an open supporter of national socialism. And Taubus, and he was still alive uh, well into the 1980s, and Taubus had written a book, uh, this little book, uh, about his relationship to Carl Schmitt and some things that he admired about him, and all of that seemed very curious. And then I didn't think about Jacob Taubus for many years, and I wrote about some of the other topics that you talked about. And then I got more and more interested around in the early 2000s uh, in the intersection of political thought, the critique of religion, and critical studies of the Bible. A lot of modern political thought going back to Hobbes and to some degree Spinoza was very much connected to this question of critiquing the political claims of religion. And while I was working on that topic, one of the people who I read or reread was Leo Strauss, who had written about Hobbes and Spinoza and, and uh, a number of other things. And I went to a lecture about Strauss given by one of his leading students, where he mentioned uh, Strauss's famous analysis of Maimonides and the phenomenon of what Strauss called esoteric writing. That is the notion that philosophers might write in a way that conveyed one message to the more uh, learned or intelligent and a different message to a larger audience. And among the people in the audience uh, were Irving Kristol, and Gertrude Himmelfarb. This was Irving Kristol, who was one of the 
leading figures, actually sort of the founding figure in what became known as neoconservatism, and his wife, Gertrude Himmelfarb, who was a distinguished intellectual historian. And afterwards, I went up to them and I said, do you remember this seminar that you did on Maimonides with Jacob Taubus? And their eyes lit up, and Irving Kristol, who had known virtually every important intellectual in the 20th century, said, remember him. Of course, he was unforgettable. He was the only really charismatic intellectual I've ever met. Uh, and somebody should write something about him. And his wife, uh, B, or Gertrude Himmelfarb, knowing of my interest, said, uh, maybe it should be you, Jerry. So I, I tucked that away in my mind. And a few days later, I was at another conference, and I met up with someone else I knew, uh, Norman Birnbaum, who was a left-wing sociologist. And I asked him about Jacob Taubus, and he started to regale me with stories about his experiences with Jacob Taubus and Susan Sontag and her then-husband, Philip Reef, who I'd also written about before. And he said, I think he was the one that told me another person who knew Taubus pretty well was Leon Wieseltier. So I met with Leon Wieseltier at a time when he was the culture editor of the New Republic and uh, had created really sort of the best uh, book reviewing venue in the United States. And he had known Taubus later in Taubus's life in in Jerusalem. And he gave he also encouraged me to think about writing a book about Taubus. And he gave me leads about various people who had known Taubus in in uh, the United States and in Jerusalem and in in Germany. So. All of that uh, stimulated my curiosity in the first instance. Uh, what did it mean to be a charismatic intellectual? And why were so many 20th century intellectuals interested in this guy, in Jacob Taubus? And as I started to do more research on him, it also occurred to me that I might want to write a book about him because it was an opportunity, uh, an opportunity to convey a lot of key issues in 20th century politics from the Holocaust to uh, the New Left uh, and issues in 20th century intellectual life and to introduce people to a lot of key figures in intellectual life in Europe and the United States and in Israel. And so I started to interview people who knew Taubus. We Perhaps we'll talk more about that. And one of the early people that I interviewed was someone who had been a, a student of his at Columbia University, a, an editor by the name of Richard Locke. And he said, you know, Taubus's life is the stuff of a Saul Bellow novel. So I knew that I wasn't a novelist, but on the other hand, I was at an age, I guess I was about 50 at the time, when I was up for a challenge, uh, the challenge of writing about someone who was uh, charismatic, who seemed to have some appeal to such a range of thinkers, who had gone through so many political and intellectual contexts, and uh, to write a real full-scale biography of such a person, in other words, not just about his intellectual development, but about his life as a whole, seemed like an interesting challenge to take on. So in the end, it was a challenge that took a lot longer than I anticipated, but now it's done. And very well done, I must say. Uh, it, when, when I was reading it, the, the fact that he 
seem to be everywhere on three continents and and uh, know everybody who whose name was important in the intellectual world. Uh, he kind of reminded me of Tom Hanks' character in Forrest Gump or Woody Allen's in Zelig. He was everywhere where everything was happening. What drove him? What, what was his intellectual motivation? Was Taubus searching for truth? Or was he more of a contrarian, a gadfly, or what today we would call a disruptor? Uh, well, I had also... I'd, uh... I'd also thought about the Zelig uh, analogy. Uh, the difference was that Taubus was a very active person. He wasn't just a sort of passive observer uh, of the scene in uh, Germany or the United States uh, or, or even in Israel. Um, he was, by personal disposition and by intellectual conviction, uh, an antinomian, that is to say, someone who was given to challenging the rules, uh, both in his personal life and the way he conducted himself, and as a kind of, uh, as a matter of uh, intellectual belief. And a good deal of his substantive intellectual work, that is, of some of his writing and a lot of his teaching, had to do with movements and individuals in history who were religious who were usually religiously motivated and were antinomian that is were given to challenging existing institutions uh, on the grounds that uh, they were that the world as it currently existed was fundamentally unjust or evil and that it needed to be transformed in some apocalyptic way uh, and that they had a kind of uh, secret knowledge, uh, sometimes called Gnosticism, uh, about the way in which uh, the world uh, really was evil and how it ought to be uh, how it ought to be uh, improved. And uh, he was attracted, as I say, intellectually to a lot of these movements in his, his first and only book uh, on Western eschatology or Occidental eschatology was about such uh, radical, revolutionary, antinomian movements in the history of the West, uh, both in Judaism and above all in Christianity, and then in its, uh, its modern secular aftermath, and in his own, and he found much of the routine, you might say, of regular, orderly, bourgeois life to be uh, boring, to be banal, and so he was constantly on the search of for ways of making it more dramatic and more exciting. And some of that had to do with, uh, as I say, in these intellectual ways, uh, uh, focusing on movements that challenged, that challenged existing institutions historically. And some of it had to do with violating the rules of propriety in his own personal and institutional life as well. So that, that strongly... Uh, antinomian character and that uh, 
sense of boredom with the routines of liberal democratic life. Uh, that was very much part of his part of his character. And and those interests and those inclinations uh, brought him to uh, the Apostle Paul, who uh, represented for Taubus, although not for everyone, the fusion of Judaism and Christianity. Uh, was it the antinomian aspect of Paul that was meaningful to Taubus, or was there more in his uh, perception? Well, one of the curious things about Jacob Taubus is that from quite early on in his life, seemingly from the time he was a, a late teenager, perhaps in, from the time he was about 20, he had this uh, sense of identification with Paul the Apostle Paul or St. Paul, um, although he didn't, of course, regard him as a saint. Uh, and that identification uh, and fascination took various forms. So uh, early on, it seems, so we should perhaps mention for people who aren't familiar with Jacob Taubus, um, that he came from a long line of distinguished or Eastern, Ortho, yeah, Eastern European uh, Orthodox Jewish uh, rabbis, uh, Talmudic scholars on the one hand, and Hasidic rebbes on the other. Uh, and he, Jacob himself, had uh, smicha, had uh, rabbinical ordination from the time he was a young man. And so he came very much from this very deep Jewish Orthodox, uh, actually Orthodox Zionist, uh, background, uh, and one of the th and early on, he seems to have been fascinated by the fact. But, but he, sorry, but I should also mention that he was very much influenced from the time of his university studies by uh, by by Marxism and other radical movements, and he was also uh, very conversant with modern Protestant and Catholic theology because he had come in contact with leading Protestant and Catholic theologians uh, through uh, work with his father on trying to save European Jews during the Second World War. So he was unusual in that he was from this, he was Orthodox uh, Jewish to begin with, deeply learned in those sorts of sources. Uh, but he was fascinated by, in the first instance, I think, by Paul as someone who had, who was clearly from a Jewish background, and and Taubus was interested in just how Jewish Paul's background was in a way that tended not to be emphasized by scholars at the time. Uh, so that interested Taubus, but the fact that he had taken this Jewish religion and had transformed it into something that had a much broader, more universal audience. Uh, as time went on, he he taught Paul. He he studied Paul and uh, taught Paul's um, uh, epistles time and again in universities in the United States and in um, and in Germany and sometimes also to uh, Dominican monks in Jerusalem. Uh, and as time went on, he became more and more fascinated with and focused on what he saw as the antinomian elements of Paul. 
That is, there are many there are statements by Paul about the fact that uh, with the coming of Jesus, uh, the law, and just what that meant was controversial, the law no longer applied, and uh, that the law leads to the law in itself leads to sin. Uh, and Taubus, who was from this Orthodox observant Jewish background uh, and was very much attracted to violating the law, uh, found this really quite fascinating. And over time, he developed an interpretation of Paul, uh, which he conveyed orally and finally in a series of lectures that he gave just before he died in 1987, that were published posthumously as uh, the political theology of Paul. And there he presented an interpretation of Paul as sort of the arch, as somebody who was deeply Jewish in terms of his background, but who was also the arch antinomian of Western history and a kind of model for antinomian, anti-establishment revolt. Uh, that was based on a rather selective, shall we say, and one-sided interpretation of things that Paul said in his various letters, but that was Taubus's interpretation, and it turned, to, turned out to be one that many subsequent intellectuals found attractive. And what was the political in the political theology of Paul? How was that different from just the theology of Paul. Yes. So Taubus, from very early on in his intellectual life, was fascinated by the question of what was or what ought to be the relationship between uh, theology or religious belief and politics. Uh, one of the things that fascinated him in this fellow Carl Schmidt, who I mentioned earlier, was that in 1922, uh, Schmidt had published a book in which he suggested that all modern conceptions of politics were secularized versions of theological concepts. And uh, Taubus was very interested in that, in that notion, and a good deal of his doctoral dissertation uh, about Occidental eschatology, uh, uh, eschatology really had to do with that. Uh, so in Taubus's interpretation of Paul, as he eventually uh, as he eventually worked it out, he thought of Paul when Paul challenges the law. Taubus thought of it not just as as challenging uh, Jewish commandments, that is halacha, but also as challenging the legitimacy of the Roman Empire and putting uh, the crucified Christ uh, in place of the Caesar as the really highest form of legitimation in a way that as Taubus saw it, or as Taubus interpreted it, uh, delegitimated the ultimate religious claims of the Roman Empire. So he saw Paul, Paul's political theology, as one of challenging the, the law uh, and challenging the legitimacy of existing oppressive political institutions. 
Now, there are, there are, yeah, there are some passages in Paul that one could read that way. There are other passages in Paul where Paul says uh, you should accept uh, the legitimate, the existing political authorities and so on. Um, Taubus had a propensity to these rather uh, one-sided interpretations of Paul, but ones that, as I say, had a lot of, um, uh, had a lot of attraction for a lot of people thereafter. He, he also seemed very uh, fascinated or to find meaningful um, some of the themes in, uh, in Paul's uh, letters uh, about the inevitability of sin, the issue of free will was also an important theme for him. Uh, tell us about that. Yes. So the whole notion of, the whole notion in Paul uh, that because of original sin, um, that which I, as Paul puts it, uh, that which I want to do, I cannot do. Uh, that is to say, in Paul's reading of things, our uh, uh, our urges are such, our, uh, our desires, our urges are such that we can't really control them uh, unless, uh, but for the fact of uh, Christ's crucifixion and, uh, and atonement for our sins and so on. And, and that's that, and God's grace is what makes it possible for us to overcome uh, uh, overcome those sorts of uh, those sorts of urges and allow us to do what we ought to do rather than what our limbs uh, <laughs> and our bodily organs make us want to do. Um, Taubus found that whole emphasis on the limits of free will uh, and on the urge to do what what perhaps one ought not to do. Uh, he found that that it resonated a lot with his own personality and his own psyche. Now, the curious thing is that Taubus at no point in his life believed in the theological basis of Paul's notion that one could overcome this through, uh, through the incarnation and atonement and God's grace and so on. Um, that part of it, Taubus never bought into at all. Never seemed plausible to him at all. Uh, but he, but he was attracted on the one hand to what you might call the psychology that Paul expresses uh, in his epistles, and on the other hand to the antinomianism that he expresses, at least as Taubus interpreted it. Yes, uh, we'll we'll get to Taubus's urges and. Uh, whether or not he could have controlled them in, in a bit. Uh, but, but first, let, uh, it, Taubus, like all of us, is, was in part a product of his time. He lived in a, apocalyptic times. Uh, and the end of days themes in Judaism and also its daughter religions um, inspired his thinking. Where did he go with those themes? Uh, well, you know, Renee, there are thinkers who have some starting point, some uh, conceptual starting point that they then develop in a systematic and coherent way 
in the course of their lifetimes. Taubus was not among those. That is to say, there are certain themes and concerns that he kept coming back to. But it was, but, uh, it was not like he had a coherent answer to some of the questions that were raised by uh, experiences that he himself had gone through and that the world had gone through in the course of his lifetime. So take the matter of the, of the Shoah, of the Holocaust. Um, as I mentioned, uh, he was living, this was as a very young man, uh, was living in Zurich where his father was, the, uh, was a distinguished rabbi who became very involved in attempts to publicize information during the Second World War, about what was going on in Eastern Europe about the mass murder of the Jews, and uh, to and to publicize that, to bring it to public attention, and to try to bring pressure upon, uh, especially in 1944, upon the Hungarian government to stop the Nazis from destroying the rem the uh, substantial remnants of Hungarian Jewry. So uh, the, the, the Holocaust was very much part of Taubus's experience as a young man. But there are various religious or political conclusions that one could draw from that experience. You know, you might conclude that, uh, that the world was a fundamentally evil place and one should reject it and all its institutions. He was kind of attracted to that. Or one could conclude that as opposed to the traditional Jewish doctrine of that God, you know, rewards the righteous and punishes the evil, uh, punishes men who are evil, uh, that was so obviously and massively violated in the Holocaust that any such conception of God uh, was entirely implausible. And Taubus was very much attracted to that too, and to a notion developed by some theologians that it was the very absence of God's presence in the world that ought to be the basis of religious belief. In other words, his, his, his manifest non-presence in the world that somehow paradoxically ought to be the basis of religious belief. Or one could take the uh, a kind of uh, orthodox religious point of view and say the secular world is an evil place and uh, orthodox religion offers an alternative to it and a position from which to criticize it. And Taubus was attracted to those solutions too, which were articulated uh, among Protestants by the great Protestant theologian Karl Barth, with whom Taubus studied, um, and also were found in a different way by in ultra-Orthodox groups like the Satmar Hasidim, with whom he also had a relationship. Or one could, uh, from a Jewish point of view, uh, uh, seize on the Zionist uh, suggestion that uh, in the age of ethnic nationalism, uh, the the only solution for Jews in terms of preserving their their existence uh, was to have a nation state of their own. So Taubus was exposed to all of those alternatives and 
wrestled with them in his own in his own mind. Uh, but unlike many people who come to the conclusion that one or another of these solutions is the proper one, the interesting thing about Taubus is he managed to maintain them all in his own mind at and uh, and at sort of selectively embrace each of them, uh, not just over time, but even at the same time. So uh, as someone put it to me when I was writing the book, um, for a for a discerning mind, uh, the solution to uh, alternative uh, the way of solving the problem of alternative solutions to difficult problems may be not to decide, and there's a sense in which Taubus did that, and uh, that had certainly certain weaknesses, um, but it also led to a situation where he could critique each of those points of view from the other points of view which made, made him quite an interesting critic of various cultural and political and religious trends and institutions. Many people uh, would suffer from a kind of mental indigestion uh, from taking in these divergent ideas and worldviews. I mean, going from the Satmar Rebbe to uh, to Christians, Jews, communists, Zionists, uh, and and secular religious mystics, uh, what is it about Taubus? Do you think that enabled him to connect, really connect? Now, he didn't just read their ideas; he really connected with people who held those ideas or were leaders with in those ideas. What enabled him to do that? Um, part of it is the, f uh, so part of it is the fact that he was, he was genuinely very smart. There's no, <laughs> there's no gainsaying that. Uh, and many people who came into contact with him, uh, including people like Irving Kristol and Gertrude Himmelfarb, who met him when he was a young man, were very uh, struck by that. Uh, and he had a part of that smarts. Uh, was that he had a tremendous capacity for ingesting ideas, that is, for uh, getting to the heart of uh, arguments and books and so on, and then being able to convey that to others and being able to criticize those ideas from, as I say, from these, uh, from these alternative points of view. Secondly, he was religiously musical, um, or as someone put it, he was polymorphously spiritual. Uh, that is to say, Max Weber famously said that he himself was religiously unmusical. That is, he, he didn't have a kind of deep internal sense of what it meant to be religious. And when he wrote about religion, was writing about it sort of from the out, necessarily from the outside. Well, Taubus was in some ways the opposite. Uh, by virtue of his own immersion, uh, of coming out of a deeply religious context, indeed coming out of a variety of Jewish religious contexts, um, uh, Orthodox, Zionist, ultra-Orthodox, anti-Zionist, uh, and so on, and 
being in deep contact with uh, a variety of uh, Christians, of of Catholics, of uh, of Lutheran Protestants, of Calvinist Protestants, uh, and so on, and he had an ability to feel at home uh, in all of those environments uh, in a way that was really. Uh, quite unusual and was remarked upon by by many of those who who knew him. He was also linguistically talented. Uh, he uh, German was his first language, but uh, Yiddish was also spoken in his home. And uh, his grandfather, who lived with them, uh, spoke Polish. And uh, he in school uh, in Vienna and then in Switzerland he. He learned Latin and some Greek and French and English. And most remarkably, to me at least, uh, he grew up in a Mizrahi home, that is a religious Zionist home. And part of the Zionist project was the recovery of Hebrew as a spoken language. And his father went to rabbinical school in the 1920s in Vienna, and some of his teachers, some of the father's teachers, uh, lectured in Hebrew. And uh, Hebrew was, was well known in Taubus's, uh family. Uh, his mother was, good fr was friends late in, uh, late in life, late in the life of Chaim Nachman Bialik, uh, one of the founders of uh, modern Hebrew literature. And Taubus went to schools uh, in Vienna, to Jewish schools in which some of the, in which the Jewish subjects were taught in Hebrew. So to make a long story short, when he arrived in Jerusalem in 1949, where he spent a couple of years, he could already not just speak Hebrew, but lecture in Hebrew. Uh, and he lectured on uh, Israeli radio at the time and at Hebrew University and so on. So he had, uh, he had these linguistic gifts, which also opened up uh, a much wider variety of uh, intellectual and cultural perspectives to him. His talent for uh, religion, if we could say that, his feeling, his intuitive gift for religious and spirituality, uh, it, it wasn't all he had because he wrote about uh, secularization a great deal. Was he for it or against it? Both. Uh, that is to say, uh, that is to say, he thought that the common notion in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, that secularization was a kind of unidirectional process, that the world was becoming more and inevitably more and ever more secular. Uh, he thought that as an empirical proposition, that was wrong. And he meant that in two senses. One was that he thought that a good deal of what was going on in the world in movements such as uh, socialism and communism were secularized versions of longer standing human hopes and urges, which had ultimately religious roots 
uh, in Judaism and Christianity, and and the whole notion of uh, redemption from a fallen world was something that he thought was uh, recaptured in various modern political movements uh, up through and including um, Marxism and communism. So on the one hand, he thought that such, uh, such movements aimed at radical transformation were, um, were transformations of ultimately uh, religious urges. Secondly, he thought one of the problems with the secularization thesis, uh, and this was particularly the case in the late 1970s, was that uh, there were demonstrably religious movements that were making political claims. So in the late, in the late 1970s, when he got more deeply interested than he even had been before in these issues of political theology, he pointed to the rise of the uh, moral majority in the United States and other evangelical Protestant movements that were trying to affect politics. He spent a good deal of time in the later 1970s and early 1980s in Israel, where he was confronted by the reality of Gush Emunim, that is a new kind of religious Zionism that made political claims and territorial claims uh, in, in the name of theology. And in the late 1970s, of course, in 1979, one had the rise in Iran of this remarkable revolution, the Khomeiniite revolution, which, of course, made political claims uh, based on religious, uh, religious premises and religious authority. So in that sense, too, he thought that the notion that uh, the world was becoming more secular or that politics were going to be entirely removed from religious claims in the way that Hobbes and Spinoza had hoped, by the way, um, was, was actually not the case. Uh, the way you just explained uh, Taubes's incredibly wide range of diverse ideas and faiths um, reminded me of something I noticed as I was reading the book, which was how you take the man and his ideas and very skillfully interweave history, context, and explanations of things that not every reader would know. It's, it's seamless, and I know it wasn't easy, so I just wanted to let you know that at least one reader noticed it and appreciated the work that went into making it look so easy. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm grateful to you for that, because that really was one of the purposes of the book. Uh, from the way in which I conceived it from very early on, and that was to take the life of this uh, enigmatic, uh, dramatic, and rather fascinating person and use it to introduce the reader to a wide range of uh, political events and ideas and cultural contexts uh, in the course of the 20th century. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you had that feeling in reading the book. I did. I did. Let's focus for a moment, Jerry, on Taubus the man, not just the thinker and scholar. 
talk about the role of his personality or his psychopathology uh, on his ideas and career. Yeah. So this comes back to the issue that I began with of what makes a charismatic intellectual. So some of Taubus's charisma had to do with uh, the range of his knowledge and his ability to present these uh, broad vistas on uh, the history of the West and the history of religion and so on. But part, uh, part of it also had to do with his personality and with his characters. And those were influenced to some degree or another by underlying psychobiological traits. Now, the last thing I want to do is uh, reduce his very interesting personality and character and somewhat problematic personality and character. Uh, I don't want to just reduce them to uh, biology, but there's no, there's no doubt that biology played some role in it. And that is Taubus had a variety, had a, uh, a variety of uh, manic depression that uh the specialists in the field called called type two manic depression, um, and what that means is that uh, for much of a person's life they experience periods of depression, but especially but also periods of hypomania. That is to say, uh, of greater uh, excitability and liveliness. And then at some point in the lives of such people, typically in middle age and typically when there's some sort of crisis, and this happened to Taubus as a result of both a political crisis having to do with the new left at the university he was at and the marital crisis uh, having to do with his own second marriage, um, uh, there's some kind of crisis leading to an actual uh, psychic breakdown and psychosis, uh, which then, uh, in, in Taubus's case, was was partially treated through um, uh, electroshock therapy. Uh, but the, the the point is that people who have this variety of manic depression, uh, especially in the manic stage, uh, not in the manic stage, but in the hypomanic stage, that is in the in the less radical stage, have this. Uh, ability to think in broad terms tend to have a lot of insight into the people uh, with whom they come into contact, the kind of deep psychological insight that's often quite startling to their interlocutors, and that was certainly the case with Taubus. They also have a tendency to uh, greater to engage in risky behavior in all sorts of ways, and for some people it takes the form of gambling, certainly not in Taubus's case, um, but it often takes the form of uh, risky erotic behavior. And indeed, uh, from fairly early on in his life till really the very end of his life, um, Taubus did engage in a kind of erotic adventurism, uh, namely having <laughs> erotic relationships with a lot of women, uh, including very much so those to whom he was not married at the time, uh, and and serially and sometimes simultaneously, uh, and often in ways in and sometimes in ways that were 
uh, risky for him. That is, that affected the, the very much affected the way in which other people saw him, uh, especially other men whose whose wives, say, or girlfriends he might have uh, had an erotic relationship with. Uh, so that 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 uh, propensity to engage in risky behavior. Uh, it went together with this uh, sort of intellectual propensity to champion rule breaking and uh, norm violation. So there was a kind of uh, uh, mutual interaction, you might say, where it's hard to see what's hard to say what's cause and what's what's effect between these personality traits and the kind of intellectual and cultural. Uh, forces to which he was drawn and which he propagated. I spoke with Paul Mendez-Flor yesterday, who knew Taubus well and over a long period of time. Uh, he, said, he said he had uh, diabolical charisma, which I thought was a wonderful expression. <laughs> Is that something you agree with? Uh, very much so. And the reason I agree with it is because, uh, look, part of my, since Taubus exerted much of his charismatic effect, not through his writing, because he didn't do that much writing while he was, uh, while he was alive, um, most of his influence, less, I'm sure, afterwards. <laughs> well, yeah. no, cur- curiously, more <laughs> more after he died, in the sense that a number of books of his lectures and essays and so on were published in the decades after he died posthumously. So, of course, he didn't write them posthumously, but they, <laughs> but they were published posthumously. Uh, and that's an interesting story in itself that I tell in the book. But... Um, uh, so it occurred to me fa- fairly early on in my research that most of his influence was through his actual contact upon individuals. And therefore, if I was going to write this kind of full-scale biography, it was incumbent upon me to interview people who knew him at various stages of his life. And I ended up interviewing about a hundred people who knew him at various stages of his life. And since by the time I started this project, Taubus would already have been um, about 80 years old, uh, for for a lot of his, it was clear to me that for a lot of his exact peers, um, they might not be around that much longer. So I ought to go about interviewing them, which I did. And when I interviewed people who knew Taubus, um, they spoke about him in a variety of ways. But one of the terms that often came up was uh, diab- was demonic or diabolical or in a more uh, neutral kind of way, Mephistophelian. Uh, all of these, some of these imply evil uh, and some of them imply a kind of uh, creativeness that goes together with that creativeness that he inspired in other people. That's part of the notion of the Greek notion of, of a daimon. Um, uh, I, I understand from somebody that I interviewed that his, the people at the Jewish professors at the Jewish theological seminary, where he had spent some time in the late 1940s, uh, referred to him as the Sitra Achra, that is someone who came from the, it's a mystical term in Judaism, of someone who comes from the realm of evil. Um, so uh, so there was this diabol. so many people, not just Paul um, and this floor, um, thought about him in terms of 
uh, both as having this diabolical element and this charismatic element, which they sometimes, which they often enough found uh, enlivening and inspiring, but at some point or another, it often led to some kind of disappointment or betrayal or what have you in the history of his personal relations with others. Why did some of his contemporaries consider him a charlatan? Um, as, I, as I've said, he was very smart and he really did know a lot, but he claimed to know more than he actually did. <laughs> and he claimed more expertise than he actually had. Uh, you know, he was somebody who knew of something about a wide range of fields having to do with broadly with religion and philosophy. Uh, but he didn't know as much as people who were really specialists in those fields. And often people who, um, people who knew him in one capacity or another thought of him as an expert in some field in which the people who he knew who were actually experts in those fields didn't think of him as an expert in those fields, in, in fields like Gnosticism or, uh, or Jewish mysticism uh, or uh, a number of other things. Um, so, and Taubus, uh, he had an interesting, he had this, as I say, remarkable capacity for ingesting information, but it was, it was somewhat uh, problematic. That is to say, he would look at a book, and because he knew sort of a fair amount of what was going on in any given field, he would look at a book, he would read the title, look at the table of contents, perhaps read the introduction and flip through, and in 15 or 20 minutes, he was able to get his own sense of where that book and its arguments fit into some larger set of debates. And he would then convey that to other people. But, some, but uh, it wasn't based on a deep or precise reading of the text. And in that sense, it was, often, um, uh, it was often enough imprecise. And then there were famous occasions uh, on which uh, his... Uh, uh, he, I should mention he also had a propensity for borrowing ideas from other thinkers and presenting them in his books and in his lectures uh, and in conversation to others without noting that these ideas were not originally his own. Now, that had certain advantages uh, in that a lot of the ideas that he was conveying were really very interesting. Uh, but, the, uh, but the fact that he had taken them without acknowledgement from others was seen by some people as evidence of his uh, charlatanism. And then there were cases where uh, that was really expressed in a, in a kind of radical way. So there was, uh, there was a famous case when he was a, um, an instructor at Harvard uh, in the mid-1950s, when a couple of senior professors uh, in the field of philosophy who had noted Taubus's propensity to claim to know more than he actually did, um, engaged him in a conversation that they had arranged in advance about 
a figure, I think it was called something like uh, Gabriel of Hildesheim, and uh, they explained that he was a uh, medieval, uh, not very well-known uh, medieval mystic whose, whose work lay somewhere between the Thomistic and scholastic schools of medieval thought. And they talked about him for a little while, and then Thomas began to talk about him, about the fact that, oh, we didn't know that other people knew about this fellow, and uh, here were some of the insights of this fellow's fellow's psychology or philosophy. And at the end of the... after that, uh, his interlocutors informed him that actually there was no such person. They had made him up. Uh, And... On the one hand, this was seen uh, legitimately, of course, as evidence of a kind of charlatanism on Taubus's, uh on Taubus's part. On the other hand, the fact that he could that he knew enough about Thomism and Scotism to plausibly come up with what some intermediary figure would have thought um, attests, in some ways, to his uh, to his to the range of his uh, knowledge and his inventiveness. So that was always a factor with Taubus. Um, uh, people who saw him as brilliant and people who saw him as a, as a charlatan from uh, from fairly early on. And and I I leave it to the reader to decide uh, which of these is more accurate based on a lot of evidence presented in the book. Well, we're not going to let you get away that easily. <laughs> Finally, Jerry. Uh, what's your judgment? Do you think Jacob Taubus was brilliant and mentally ill, brilliant and obnoxious, a con man? Um, his colleagues weighed in. What's your opinion? Well, there's no doubt that he had um, deep mental problems at a certain point in his life uh, in when he was in his late forties, early fifties, when he had this um, actual psychotic break. Uh, But as for the role of his hypomania, uh, both before and after that, you know, it's often the case with near neuro atypical people that, uh, that they're, their, what can be seen as their symptoms, so to speak, um, also has certain advantages. And that was, uh, that was the case in, in Taubus's case, I think, um, that it gave him that, that very risk-taking propensity uh, in the realm of thought often led him to make interesting intellectual connections that other people uh, wouldn't have made. Um, was he a... Uh, he was he in some ways he was a con in that he uh led people to believe that he knew more than he actually did, but he really did know a lot, and not only did he know a lot in terms of say pure knowledge, but because he was able to marshal these varying intellectual and disciplinary and political perspectives, he was often quite acute in the critiques that he made of the plausibility of various uh, religious beliefs and behaviors, uh, and sometimes of certain political movements as well. So uh, there, there was both there. There was the brilliance and the charlatanism. There was, um, uh, there was a tendency to be 
exploitative, pe- exploitative of people, but also uh, often to be very uh, enlivening of their of their lives. Uh, it's it's all there, and uh, it would be. Uh, I think it would, be, it would be a lot less interesting if he were equivocally, unequivocally on one or another side of these issues. Well done. <laughs> Lots of good luck with Professor of the Apocalypse, Jerry. It's a work you can be very proud of. Thanks for taking the time to talk about it with us today. And thank you for taking the time. Uh, and uh, I'll be curious to see the reactions to Professor of Apocalypse. It's just come out in English and it's coming out at the end of the year in German, uh, where it should have, uh, I guess, an a intellectual life of its own. So thanks very much, Renee. Good luck and congratulations. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff.